Welcome back to the 101st episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including talking about the diploma divide in American politics and how it will affect the coming elections, how journalists don't really speak truth to power anymore, and how Elon Musk's interview with the BBC shows that, and a quick story talking about Bill Maher and his thoughts on the Trump indictment. And, of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So why does education seem to make people more liberal? That's the question that I'll start out with. And I I don't mean liberal in the political sense, but rather in the worldview sense. And you may be asking, well, what's, what's the difference? And I understand education or colleges nowadays, a lot of them are called liberal arts colleges. They give you a liberal arts education. But as we see in our first article, the growing divide between the Americans who attend college and the non-college educated populations is growing. So what makes colleges and more importantly, education, lean in on liberal ideas? Is it the fact that it opens you up to different perspectives? It allows you to see the world from a different view than you've been sheltered to do? It makes you interact with more people so you have a more diverse set of ideas? All of these are possibilities. What's your opinion? I want to hear it. Throw it down in the comment section And let's jump into our first article. This one comes from the New York Times. The diploma divide is the new fault line in American politics. And anybody who's been paying attention to politics for a while now knows this. A lot of the more Republican voting areas tend to be a little bit further out. They be a little bit more rural. They are not as college educated And then the suburbs and the cities have been filled with people who are highly educated, getting really expensive apartments and really well-paying jobs because of their college education. So we've seen this divide for a long time. But what does it actually mean? What does it mean going forward? Because obviously we understand what's going on, but what impact will it have beyond just the shifting demographics? Quote, certain fundamentals will shape the races as candidates strategize about how to win the White House. To do this, they will have to account for at least one major political realignment. Educational attainment is the new fault line in American politics. Educational attainment has not replaced race in that respect, but it is increasingly the best predictor of how Americans will vote and for whom. It has shaped the political landscape and where the 2024 presidential election almost certainly will be decided. So what they're saying is not only has this trend been going up, but it's actually going to increase. We're going to see these trends continue forward. That's what they're speculating. And to be honest, I don't necessarily know if this holds. We have a lot of progressive people coming into Congress. We have a lot of Democrats really coming back to their pro-union roots, which normally are not college-educated people who are part of these unions, who are working these harder manufacturing jobs in the more rural areas. So maybe they can call off a few of the 
people that have gone to the Republican Party in their time of desperation, as they would probably put it. And maybe there's a future shift coming again. We'll see. We'll see. I don't necessarily know if that's the case, but the the interesting thing is they said that race used to be the key dividing line. And it, they're saying it's not necessarily not a important fault line, but it, it still has some relevance. And there was a perception, there was an idea after 2008 and going into 2012 when President Obama put together a coalition of minority voters that that would be the Democrats' base for a long, long time. That was their new coalition. That's how they would keep power in the White House and make sure that they had some of you know, either the House or the Senate, at least under their control, so Republicans couldn't get too out of check. But we've seen this idea, this philosophy of a minority coalition really start to fall apart as Trump was able to peel off a few different minority groups. He's had higher voter turnout among blacks, among Hispanics, than other Republicans did in the past. So obviously that ideology didn't hold. So the fact that New York is saying this will in the future, the New York Times is saying that, we'll see. Right now, it definitely rings true. I don't think anything will change within the next two years. But maybe going forward, it will, especially with moves from places like Florida and other states that are really imposing their will on these colleges. Maybe there will be a revival of maybe a few conservative universities or conservative groups on these campuses. We know that there are a whole bunch of them. You see uh, Young Americans for Freedom or college Republicans, you see a lot of these groups, but maybe they'll become more influential with the state stepping in and trying to really strip back some of this really progressive ideology that you're seeing come out on these campuses. Sorry, I went on a long rant there. Let's jump back into this quote. Quote, to understand American politics, candidates and voters alike will need to understand this new fundamental. Americans have always viewed education as a key opportunity, but few predicted the critical role it would come to play in our politics. This makes the diploma divide, as it's often called, so fundamental to our politics that it has been sorting Americans into Democrats and Republicans based on their educational attainment. College-educated voters are now more likely to identify as Democrats, while those without college degrees, especially white Americans, but increasingly, increasingly others as well, are now more likely to support Republicans, end quote. And that really does speak to the increasing amount of minorities that are voting Republican that I was just speaking about. So at the end of the day, what does this actually mean for the candidates? What do they have to do? Well, it's probably going to mean that Trump is going to speak a lot about jobs. He's going to say, we need to bring back more of our jobs. We need to onshore more manufacturing jobs. We need to grow these manufacturing sectors. He's not necessarily going to go as far as to say that he needs to strengthen unions, but he's going to really lock in his base with that kind of language. And then maybe to penetrate into some of these other areas, he's going to talk about crime which is something that's a lot more dense in these suburban and city areas. So that's maybe his way to penetrate into that Democratic stronghold that you see in some of those cities and say, hey, if you're concerned about this, you can vote for me and we'll deal with it. 
And then the inverse is how does Biden necessarily penetrate into the rural areas? You've seen him do it a lot. And let's be clear. I'm not saying Trump is necessarily the candidate and Biden is the definite candidate. But that's what it's looking like so far. So we're just going to use them as the stand-in for the candidate. Biden's going to have to appeal to those unions and their members. And also, he'll still talk about onshoring jobs, bringing manufacturing back. You know, these talking points are not new. But he's also going to have to talk about bringing up legislation that allows them to maybe have a stronger bargaining agreement when talking with the company. Or maybe they can have a wage-adjusted, sorry, inflation-adjusted wage. So these sort of issues he can speak to to really penetrate back into those rural areas. So like the article says, they're going to have to be conscious of this and they're going to have to keep making active decisions in order to either really shore up their base or penetrate into those other groups, those either college-educated or non-college-educated demographics in order to get a few more votes. But, you know, this trend, it doesn't just happen in the U.S., which I thought was very interesting. It's actually a worldwide trend as well. Quote, culturally, a person's education attainment increasingly correlates with their views on a wide range of issues like abortion, attitudes about LGBTQ rights, and the relationship between government and organized religion. It also extends to cultural consumption, movies, TVs, books, social media choices, and the sources of information that shape voters' understanding of facts. This is not unique to the United States. The pattern has developed across nearly all Western democracies. Going back to 2016, the Brexit vote, and the most recent national elections in Britain and France, education level was the best predictor of how people voted. End quote. So what I think is a very important distinction here is it's going across Western democracies. So what's so special about Western democracies or what's so different about Western democracies than other cultures around the world? One thing that comes to mind almost immediately, and you know, if you don't like what I'm about to say, I'm sorry, but it does play a huge, huge role, is religiosity in the West has gone down. And in other places where a lot of the population is becoming more educated, think Africa, South America, some parts of Indonesia, what do they have? They have strong social structures, whether that be religion, family ties, or just strong culture. Think about China and some other Asian cultures where you find normally they have their family as one unit. And if they're not as one unit, they live close to one another. Mom and dad come over and do chores. They cook or the kids come back and do chores for the mom and dad. There's a strong culture. There's a strong family structure and a strong sense of societal institutions really weaving them together. Versus in the West, you have more of a individualistic ideal that is come about. And I think, and this is a, uh, let me take it back. This is my personal opinion. The last few ones were observations that can be borne out by fact. This is purely my own opinion, which is at the end of the day, college is a individualizing institution. You come together, you find your social group. There are, of course, social institutions here on campus, maybe a prayer group maybe a club that you really like. But a lot of the lessons are individualist-focused. What can you do to improve the company? What can you do 
in this specific instance? How can you best be fulfilled by your life? What is the meaning in your life in some philosophy classes? And there's a very individual, maybe egocentric curricula at some of these colleges. And of course, there's something great about that because in America, we do want the individual to be strong. We want them to feel that they can, if they choose, go out and create a brand new biomedical health application or device that can save people's lives, that they can have an impact on the world just by themselves. But at the end of the day, when you have this idea that everything revolves around you or you can be the most important person in the room, then maybe you start to see a little bit less of a conservative leaning because you start to say, well, I don't need those social institutions. I've been to college. I've learned how to be self-sufficient. I've learned how to be a strong individual, and I don't need the societal institutions in order to keep me going. And therefore, you become a little bit more liberal. You're willing to tear away at those institutions, even the pre- defined rules of government because, oh, yeah, no, that institution, you know, it didn't serve me. I'm critical of it. It's not about how I can serve the institution or how I can benefit the institutions, how that institution can benefit me. How can government help me? How can the church help me rather than how can I help the government? How can I help my church? How can I help my nation? And I know I'm, I'm really going on a rant here, but it is a thought that I've had in the past. And maybe that's why we're seeing a lot of this in the West, because that is how a lot of our education is structured. In China, whether you like it or not, it's all about the party. What can you do to help the party? And even when you're in school, you say, oh, I want to become a scientist. You're not just becoming a scientist because you want to research things, but also because the party may need more scientists. They may need more engineers to help create new programs and things of that nature. So there's a guiding light that's not the individual, but rather a societal institution, a government, or something larger than you that you can aspire towards and try to help shape and everything of that nature. So maybe that's why we're becoming a little bit more liberal or people that go to college become a little bit more liberal. And it's something that these politicians are going to have to deal with moving forward, but not just in the U.S., across the Western world, and maybe even in the future in other countries as well as, be- as they become a little bit more democratic and maybe there's a little bit more influence from our education institutions. All right, that was a lot. Let's talk about another critical part of democracy, a free and very often critical press. So this next article comes from the New York Post. Elon Musk's BBC interview shows journalists don't speak truth to power. They coddle it. So I'll give you a little bit of the setup here. This is how the article opens, and I think it does a better job than I ever could. Imagine a profession filled with ideologically foolish people who lack curiosity and are fueled by snobbery. They're among the population's most educated people with degrees from exclusive universities Yet, many make a career out of being useful idiots. They are egotistically certain about what they know and nothing about what they don't, and willfully oblivious to their pretentious demeanor, as self-awareness is not their strong suit. Now suppose these people are the ones we rely on for information 
and hurtful, truthful narratives surrounding serious events. End quote. So what he's describing, guess what? It's, it is our press. It is the reporters, the ones who go around believing they know the answers and they're just searching for a way to explain it to the average everyday person. Of course, I don't think this always holds true. There are lots of great journalists on every side of the aisle who are actually trying to fight the power, so to speak, not to use that old song, you know, be a little cliche, but they are trying to push back against the institutions that have huge effects over their lives and their readers' lives. And they want to understand how the levers of power are pulled and what these corporations, governments, anything that has a large amount of power is working for and against the people and trying to speak truth to that. There are, of course, those reporters out there, and there are many good ones. But there are also a lot who get into these corporate machines and just toe the line. They just, oh, okay, this is the narrative. Okay, we're just going to do this today. Oh, Rupert Murdoch sent down a, a memo. Oh, we're changing that story. Okay, great. Or I don't know who the head of NBC is nowadays, but they're sending down a memo. We're not supposed to talk about that story. Okay, I'll make sure that we don't bring it up. And if someone, one of our guests does, you know, I'll run cover. So, and then when they do that, they also have this whole presence of, well, no, no, I'm just reporting the truth. I, I know better than you. It's my job to know more than you. I'm just telling you how it is. And I do think there are those who are like that. And this interviewer from the BBC, James Clayton, definitely had that air about him. I first read this article, and then I decided to go watch the interview before I did this section. And he, he definitely has an air of, hey, I know what I'm talking about. I'm bringing up the facts here. You're just you're pushing back for no good reason. Or, oh, I'm right. Oh, you disagree with me? Okay, let's move on. He says that a lot. When Elon gives a good argument and they kind of get stuck in the weeds because Elon's trying to get his thought process out of him, he says, okay, I don't think we're getting anywhere. Let's move on. Of course, you know, there's room for that. You always want to keep the conversation flowing. If you feel like it's not going to get anywhere, you're not going to get any information out of him, then yes, you should move on. But when you do it in a way that seems demeaning, like, oh, you don't have a point. I don't agree with you. You're not going to come to my side, so let's just move on it doesn't actually serve a good purpose. And, you know, this interview, this author from the New York Post has a lot to say about it. Quote, This present-day profile of mainstream media journalists is not an American problem, but international, as Twitter owner Elon Musk found out in his interview with BBC reporter James Clayton. The pair got on to the topic of censorship and hate speech on Twitter. As Clayton noted, Musk brought back controversial people previously banned and former Twitter employees have accused the platform of lacking moderation for hate speech. Quote, Hutz, what hate speech are you talking about? Musk promptly inquired. Quote, I mean, you use Twitter. Do you see a rise in hate speech? Just a, a personal anecdote. Because I don't. The CEO asked Clayton to give him one instance of hate speech he'd seen since Musk took over. But Clayton couldn't provide one. Quote, you cannot give me a single example of hateful content? Not even one tweet, and yet you are claiming that hateful content was high? That is false. You just lied, an annoyed Musk said. Quote, no one, no, I claim there are many organizations that say the kind of information is on the rise, Clayton fumbled. Quote, the Strategic Dialogue Institution, 
in the UK, they will say that, end quote. And, you know, they go on, and of course, this is a little bit of fumbling on his part, and he's using an outside source, and he did say that he doesn't use the trending or the For You page on Twitter anymore because he doesn't want to be subjected to this kind of hate speech. And then he later says, well, no, no, what I was actually trying to get at is there's a lot of organizations that will say hate speech is on the rise. But I think there's an important difference that we need to go into there, or at least a discussion that needs to be had about these institutions. So who are we trusting to fact check Twitter or to call out these different instances on Twitter of people maybe using hate speech? And Elon brings up a good point later on, which is how should I trust this one company that says this or multiple companies that say this And there's another company that says, oh, no, there's not a rise in hate speech. We haven't seen more hateful content. There are other analysts that go in and do research just like the Strategic Dialogue Institute and say that, oh, well, hate speech isn't as prominent as they're saying it is. Basically, they're asking who is the arbiter of truth and who should be allowed to fact check. And that's the important conversation here because at the end of the day, this man, Mr. Clayton, He is not actually saying that I believe I've seen these hate speech instances myself. He he went on, he said it at the beginning, but that doesn't actually mean that he has the evidence to back it up. So he falls on the well, there's this institution that says that there's a rise in hate speech. That could be a fair argument. If it's true and there's a rise in hate speech and they have the data for it, great, show it. But Even then, we cannot trust just a single institution on their word. We have to take the opinions of many different institutions. And that's why this content moderation is extremely, extremely tricky. And when you just rely on one or two institutions, you are appealing to their power. You're using their power, their authority, to say, oh, no, we need to ban this person because they use hate speech. When a different organization might say something different. And that's why the New York Post author is saying they are coddling power. They're using the authority and the power that comes from these institutions because they're respected in order to prove their point rather than questioning them and asking, well, okay, I may agree with this, but what's their data? How is it backed up? Are they being fair? They're just using it as a way to prove their point rather than thinking critically about it and going and researching it. And, of course, everybody has flaws. Everybody sometimes just takes something they hear and runs with it because they want to believe it or they've trusted an organization in the past. But when you're a journalist, not just a stupid podcaster like me talking about it, giving my opinions, but when you're a journalist trying to report the truth, then you do have to put in a little bit of extra work. And, you know, I'll be honest, on the podcast, sometimes I do do a little bit of deeper dives. I find statistics that back up or counter what certain articles are saying. But sometimes I do just read them to you and give my opinion on them without doing the extra legwork. And that, of course, falls on me. But I would hope if I was in this situation, I would back up and say, Okay, yeah, you're right. I haven't seen that personal that personal instance of hate speech. I'm sorry I came out flaming with such brash accusations. This is the organization that says that, but that doesn't mean it's definitive. And try to give a more balanced perspective if you can. 
and I'm not criticizing Clayton too much because I do think he is asking some hard questions to Musk, and he does have his bias. You can tell by his tone alone, but he's trying to really pry at Musk and his thinking, and I do think that is critical, especially when he runs one of the largest social media platforms or at least the most engaging when it comes to political discussions. All right, that's enough on that one. I've been ranting for a while. Let's jump to another interesting political conversation coming out from Bill Maher. This article comes from the Washington Examiner. Bill Maher cautions Democrats about Trump indictment backfiring. Sex scandals don't work on presidents. So there were a few remarks that Maher made at the end of his normal show, Real Time with Bill Maher. Quote, there is a price to pay for forgetting history, Maher said while closing his show. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. This whole going after a president for messing around, you know, I've seen this movie before. It's called Kill Bill. The comedian said to his audience while displaying a photo of former President Bill Clinton on the screen, quote, America did not like it the first time. Maher explained the infamous sex scandal that plagued Clinton's administration over his affair with White House intern Monica Lewinsky and took a swipe at Republicans for their attacks, only helping Clinton's popularity, end quote. So, honestly, I wasn't alive when this was happening, but you, I've seen some of the clips. You know, he says, I, I did not sleep with that woman. I did not have sexual affairs with that woman. And then you see the Republican host, the Fox host, coming in and saying, what are we going to tell the kids? This is outrageous. We, you know, our president, he is a deplorable person. He has no morals. This is not okay. We can't have a, pr- a person like this running our country when he's doing things that are this uh, abhorrent kind of thing. And at the end of the day, it only boosted Clinton's popularity. And Marr calls out the Republicans for doing it then. And now he's trying to call out the liberals for doing the same thing now. How dare Trump do this? How dare he pay off this person? So on and so forth. I don't know if the accusations are accurate. I don't have any insider information. I don't know why you think I would. I'm not speaking to whether he's innocent or guilty, but they're still playing the same ball game. They're giving him a lot of attention for this, and Bill Maher has the idea that it will backfire. And I think he he may be right, but also I think there's also an underlying hatred of Trump within our nation that is already there. So I don't necessarily know if it will make him any more popular among independent people or Democrats but definitely among the primaries. And you've heard this talking point from all the conservative shows, even all the liberal shows that I listen to, and Kyle Kalinske, very progressive. He said the exact same thing, which is he's going to probably win the primaries because this is a big boost for him. He can use it to campaign. He can use it to fundraise for the rest of his time. But when he gets to the general, if it still sticks in people's minds, they're not going to want a president who is going through all these legal troubles. So I don't know if Mars is necessarily right, but I do want to at least give him his time in the sunlight because he has been around a long time. He has, was actually there during the whole Clinton debacle, so he has a better understanding of what that was like than I do. And maybe there's something here that he's really speaking to, that at the end of the day, the Americans don't care about the scandal part of it, the sex scandal part of it. And that's all they're going to remember. They're not going to remember unless he gets indicted, sorry, unless he gets charged and put in jail or anything of that nature. They're not going to remember all the details. They're just going to be like, oh, it was a sex scandal with Stormy Daniels. 
And that could very well turn it around and be like, yeah, we have a rogue president. Some people may enjoy that. I don't know. I don't necessarily want my president going around doing that. I want him to be upstanding. But there are some times when Trump has said something as a president where I was like, yeah, stick it to him. Don't don't mince words. Don't be diplomatic. Say what you mean on the world stage. Get the message across. So some people may like it. Some people may not. And I don't think this is necessarily a position that a lot of people expect their president to have a lot of tact for. They want to see his policies. They don't necessarily care about his personal life before he was in office. But, you know, we'll, I'll grab one last quote from Bill Maher's show. Quote, the real-time host did quip about the distinctions between the sex scandal of Clinton and Trump. Quote, of course, Clinton's situation and Trump's have very important differences. Clinton was in office. Trump is not. Trump's case hinges on a NDA. Clinton's was more about DNA. Marr joked about Lewinsky's infamous blue-stained dress. But there are also important similarities. Neither wife could stand to hold their husband's hand, and both men claim they lie to protect the person they really love. In Clinton's case, Hillary. In Trump's case, him. End quote. So, you know, while that's very, very quippy, I do think there's a lot to this, which is Clinton was in office, which I think should affect people's opinion about him more. How dare you do that as president of the United States in the Oval Office? How dare you destroy the sanctity of the White House is how some people may think. And other people may look at Trump and say, yeah, that was before he was even president. He was messing around. He was a little bit of a playboy, so on and so forth. But also... Clinton didn't necessarily try to bribe Monica Lewinsky, as far as we can tell. And if Trump really did try to bribe Stormy Daniels, and of course he did try to bribe her, I think at this point we can determine that's pretty darn clear. But even if you don't believe that, he didn't, the accusation is that he used election funds or campaign funds in order to do that, which is a whole different ballgame. So there are lots of folds to this case, and it's not just about a sex scandal. So we'll see if Bill's right. I don't necessarily think that he's going to be 100% right, but like I said, he's been around a little bit longer than me. Maybe he knows something that I don't, or maybe there's just a little bit more wisdom there. But let's jump on to our daily delight. This one comes from Boing Boing. Club and Fawn meet. Cuteness ensues. So, you know, if there was one pairing I did not expect to see become friends, it was a bear cub and a deer fawn. Quote, check out this cutest little baby bear meeting this precious tiny baby deer. I love how the cub, whose name is Bogue, upon first laying his eyes on the fawn, stands up on his wobbly hind legs, trying his very best to look scary, end quote. But the, the real thing that brought this article together and the video are the cute comments from the guy who was taking it behind the camera. Quote, he's hiding. Look at him hiding. Hiding from that fawn. Oh, and the second, yes. Oh, it's a bear kiss. A kiss. Oh, look at that kiss. End quote. And if you want to see that cute video or you want to read any of today's articles, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine as well as the Twitter handle at your daily flip, where I post the link to the podcast on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.